Section 2 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Part 2. Probably the most influential of Rousseau's writings was The Social Contract, the great textbook of the Revolution. In this famous treatise, he advanced some important ideas which undoubtedly are based on ultimate truth, such as that the people are the source of power, that might does not make right, that slavery is an aggression on human rights. But with these ideal truths, he combines the assertion that government is a contract between the governor and the governed. In a perfect state of society, this may be the ideal, but society is not and never has been perfect. And certainly, in all the early ages of the world, governments were imposed upon people by the strong hand, irrespective of their wills and wishes, and these were the only governments which were fit and useful in that elder day. Governments, as a plain matter of fact, have generally arisen from circumstances and relations with which the people have had little to do. The Oriental monarchies were the gradual outgrowth of patriarchal tradition and successful military leadership, and in regard to them the people were never consulted at all. The Roman Empire was ruled without the consent of the governed, Feudal monarchies in Europe were based on the divine rights of kings. There was no state in Europe where a compact or social contract had been made or implied. Even later, when the French elected Napoleon, they chose a monarch because they feared anarchy without making any stipulation. There were no contracting parties. The error of Rousseau was in assuming a social contract as a fact and then reasoning upon the assumption. His premises are wrong or at least they are nothing more than statements of what abstractly might be made to follow from the assumption that the people actually are the source of power, a condition most desirable and, in the last analysis, correct. Even since military despots use the power of the people in order to oppress the people, but which is practically true only in certain states. Yet, after all, when brought under the domain of law by the sturdy sense and utilitarian sagacity of the Anglo-Saxon race, Rousseau's doctrine of the sovereignty of the people is the great political motor of this century, in republics and monarchies alike. Again, Rousseau maintains that whatever acquisitions an individual or a society may make, the right to this property must always be subordinate to the right which the community at large has over the possessions of all. Here is the germ of much of our present-day socialism. Whatever element of truth there may be in the theory that would regard land and capital, the means of production, as the joint possession of all the members of the community, the basic doctrine of socialism, any forcible attempt to distribute present results of individual production and accumulation would be unjust and dangerous to the last degree. In the case of the furious carrying out of this doctrine by the crazed French revolutionists, it led to outrageous confiscation, on the ground that all property belonged to the state, and therefore the representatives of the nation could do what they pleased with it. This shallow sophistry was accepted by the French National Convention when it swept away estates of nobles and clergy, not on the tenable ground that the owners were public enemies, but on the baseless pretext that their property belonged to the nation. From this sophistry about the rights of property, Rousseau advanced another of still worse tendency, which was that the general will is always in the right and constantly tends to the public good. The theory is inconsistent with itself. Light and truth do not come from the universal reason, but from the thoughts of great men stimulated into growth among the people. The teachers of the world belong to a small class. 
society is in need of constant reforms which are not suggested by the mass but by a few philosophers or reformers the wise men who save cities rousseau further says that a whole people can never become corrupted a most barefaced assertion have not all nations suffered periods of corruption this notion that the whole people cannot err opens the door for any license it logically leads to that other idea of the native majesty of man and the perfectibility of society which this sophist boldly accepted rousseau thought that if society were released from all law and all restraint the good impulses and good sense of the majority would produce a higher state of virtue and wisdom than what he saw around him since majorities could do no wrong and the universal reason could not err in this absurdity lay the fundamental principle of the french revolution so far as it was produced by the writings of philosophers this doctrine was eagerly seized upon by the french people maddened by generations of oppression poverty and degradation because it appealed to the pride and vanity of the masses at that time congregated bodies of ignorance and wickedness rousseau had an unbounded trust in human nature that it is good and wise and will do the best thing if left to itself but can anything be more antagonistic to all the history of the race i doubt if rousseau had any profound knowledge or even really extensive reading he was a dreamer a theorist a sentimentalist he was the arch-priest of all sensationalism in the guise of logic what more acceptable to the vile people of his age than the theory that in their collective capacity they could not err that the universal reason was divine what more logical than its culmination in that outrageous indecency the worship of reason in the person of a prostitute again rousseau's notion of the limitations of law and the prerogative of the people carried out would lead to the utter subversion of central authority and reduce nations to an absolute democracy of small communities they would divide and subdivide until society was resolved to its original elements this idea existed among the early greek states when a state rarely comprised more than a single city or town or village such as might be found among the tribes of north american indians the great political question in ancient greece was the autonomy of cities which kept the whole land in constant wars and dissensions and quarrels and jealousies and prevented that centralization of power which would have made greece unconquerable and the mistress of the world our wholesome american system of autonomy in local affairs with a common authority in matters affecting the general good is organized liberty but the ancient and outgrown idea of unregulated autonomy was revived by rousseau and though it could not be carried out by the french revolutionists who accepted nearly all of his theories it led to the disintegration of france and the multiplication of offices fatal to a healthy central power napoleon broke up all this in his centralized despotism even if to keep the revolutionary sympathy he retained the departments which were substituted for the ancient provinces the extreme spirit of democratic liberty which is the characteristic of rousseau's political philosophy led to the advocacy of the wildest doctrines of equality he would prevent the accumulation of wealth so that to use his words no one citizen should be rich enough to buy another and no one so poor as to be obliged to sell himself he would have neither rich people nor beggars what could flow from such doctrines but discontent and unreasonable expectations among the poor and a general fear and sense of insecurity among the rich this state of nature moreover in his view could be reached only by going backward and destroying all civilization and it was civilization which he ever decried a very pleasant doctrine of vagabonds but likely to be treated with derisive mockery by all those who have something to conserve 
Another and most dangerous principle which was advocated in the social contract was that religion has nothing to do with the affairs of civil and political life, that religious obligations do not bind a citizen, that Christianity, in fact, ignores all the great relations of man in society. This is distinct from the Puritan doctrine of the separation of the church from the state, by which simply meant that priests ought not interfere in matters purely political, nor the government meddle with religious affairs, a prime doctrine in a free state. But no body of men were ever more ardent defenders of the doctrine that all religious ideas ought to bear on the social and political fabric than the Puritans. They would break up slavery if it derogated from the doctrine of the common brotherhood of man as declared by Christ. They would use their influence as Christians to root out all evil institutions and laws and bring the sublime truths of the master to bear on all the relations of life, on citizens at the ballot box, at the helm of power, and in legislative bodies. Christianity was to them the supreme law with which all human laws must harmonize. But Rousseau would throw out Christianity altogether as foreign to the duties and relations of both citizens and rulers, pretending that it ignored all connection with mundane affairs and had reference only to the salvation of the soul, as if all Christ's teachings were not regulative of the springs of conduct between man and man, as indicative of the relations between man and God. Like Voltaire, Rousseau had the excuse of a corrupt ecclesiasticism to be broken into, but the church and Christianity are two different things. This he did not see. No one was more impatient of all restraints than Rousseau, yet he maintained that men, if calling themselves Christian, must submit to every wrong and injustice, looking for a remedy in the future world, thus pouring contempt on those who had no right, according to his view of their system, to complain of injustice or strive to rise above temporal evils. Christianity, he said, inculcates servitude and dependence. Its spirit is favorable to tyrants. True Christians are formed to be slaves, and they know it, and never will trouble themselves about conspiracy and insurrections, since this transitory world has no value in their eyes. He denied that Christians could be good soldiers, a falsehood rebuked for us by the wars of the Reformation, by the troops of Cromwell and Gustavus Adolphus, by our American soldiers in the late Civil War. Thus, he would throw away the greatest stimulus to heroism, even the consciousness of duty and devotion to great truths and interests. I cannot follow out the political ideas of Rousseau in his various other treatises, in which he prepared the way for revolution and for the excesses of the reign of terror. The truth is, Rousseau's feelings were vastly superior to his thinking. Whatever of good is to result from his influence will arise out of the impulse he gave toward the search for ideals that should embrace the many as well as the few in their benefits. When he himself attempted to apply this impulse to philosophic political thought, his unregulated mind went all astray. Let us now turn to consider a moment his doctrines pertaining to education as brought out in his greatest and most unexceptionable work, his Emile. In this remarkable book, everything pertaining to human life appears to be discussed. The duty of parents, child management, punishments, perception, and the beginning of thinking, toys, games, catechisms, all passions and sentiments, religion, friendship, love, jealousy, pity, the means of happiness, the pleasures and profits of travel, the principles of virtue, of justice and liberty, language, books, the nature of man and woman, the arts of conventional life, politeness, riches, poverty, society, marriage. On all these and other questions, he discourses with great sagacity and good sense, and with unrivaled beauty of expression, often rising to great eloquence, never dull or uninstructive, 
aiming to present virtue and vice in their true colors inspiring exalted sentiments and presenting happiness in simple pleasures and natural life this treatise is both full and original the author supposes an imaginary pupil named emile and he himself entrusted with the care of the boy's education attends him from his cradle to his manhood assists him with the necessary directions for his general improvement and finally introduces him to an amiable and unsophisticated girl whose love he wins by his virtues and whom he honorably marries so that although a treatise the work is invested with the fascination of a novel in reading this book which made so great a noise in europe with so much that is admirable i find but little to criticize except three things which mar its beauty and make it both dangerous and false in which the unsoundness of rousseau's mind and character the strange paradoxes of his life in mixing up good with evil are brought out and that so forcibly that the author was hunted and persecuted from one part of europe to another on account of it the first is that he makes all natural impulses generous and virtuous and man therefore naturally good instead of perverse thus throwing not only christianity but experience entirely aside and laying down maxims which logically carried out would make society perfect if only nature were always consulted this doctrine indirectly makes all the treasures of human experience useless and untutored impulse the guide of life it would break the restraints which civilization and a knowledge of life impose and reduce man to a primitive state in the advocacy of this subtle falsehood rousseau pours contempt on all the teachings of mankind on all schools and colleges on all conventionalities and social laws yea on learning itself he always stigmatizes scholars as pedants second he would reduce woman to insignificance having her rule by arts and small devices making her the inferior of man on whom she is dependent and to whose caprice she is bound to submit a sort of toy or slave engrossed only with domestic duties like the woman of antiquity he would give new rights and liberties to man but none to woman as man's equal thus keeping her in a dependence utterly irreconcilable with the bold freedom which he otherwise advocates the dangerous tendency of his writings is somewhat checked however by the everlasting hostility with which women of character and force of will such as they call strong-minded will ever pursue him he will be no oracle to them but a still more marked defect weakens emile as one of the guide-books of the world great as are its varied excellencies the author undermines all faith in christianity as a revelation or as a mean of man's communion with the divine for guidance consolation or inspiration nor does he support one of his moral or religious doctrines by an appeal to the sacred scriptures which have been so deep a well of moral and spiritual wisdom for so many races of men practically he is infidel and pagan although he professes to admire some of the moral truths which he never applies to his system he is a pure theist or deist recognizing like the old greeks no religion but that of nature and valuing no attainments but such as are suggested by nature and reason which are the gods he worships from first to last in all his writings the confession of faith by the savoyard vicar introduced into the fourth of the six books of this work which having nothing to do with his main object he unnecessarily drags in is an artful and specious onslaught on all doctrines and facts revealed in the bible on all miracles all prophecies and all supernatural revelation thus attacking christianity in its most vital points and making it of no more authority than buddhism or mohammedanism faith is utterly extinguished a cold reason is all that he would leave to man 
no consolation but what the mind can arrive at unaided no knowledge but what can be reached by original scientific investigation he destroys not only all faith but all authority by a low appeal to prejudices and by vulgar wit such as the infidels of a former age used in their heartless and flippant controversies i am not surprised at the hostility displayed even in france against him by both catholics and protestants when he advocated his rights of man from which thomas paine and jefferson himself drew their maxims he appealed to the self-love of the great mass of men ground down by feudal injustices and inequalities to the sense of justice sophistically it is true but in a way which commanded the respect of the intellect when he assailed christianity in its innermost fortresses while professing to be a christian he incurred the indignation of all christians and the contempt of all infidels for he added hypocrisy to skepticism which they did not diderot d'alembert and others were bold unbelievers and did not veil their hostilities under a weak disguise i have never read a writer who in spirit was more essentially pagan than rousseau or who wrote maxims more entirely antagonistic to christianity aside from these great falsities the perfection of natural impulse the inferiority of woman and the worthlessness of christianity as inculcated in this book emile must certainly be ranked among the great classics of educational literature with these expurgated it confirms the admirable methods inspired by its unmethodical suggestions noting the oppressiveness of the usual order of education through books and apparatus he scorns all tradition and cries let the child learn direct from nature himself sensitive and humane having suffered as a child from the tyranny of adults he demands the tenderest care and sympathy for children a patient study of their characteristics a gentle progressive leading of them to discover for themselves rather than a cramming of them with facts the first moral education should be negative no preaching of virtue and truth but shielding from vice and error he says take the very reverse of the current practice and you will almost always do right this spirit indeed is the key to his entire plan his ideas were those of the nineteenth not the eighteenth century free play to childish vitality punishment the natural inconvenience consequent on wrongdoing the incitement of the desire to learn the training of sense activity rather than reflection in early years the acquirement of the power to learn rather than the acquisitions of learning in short the natural and scientifically progressive rather than the bookish and analytically literary method was the end and aim of emile actually this book accomplished little in its own time chiefly because of its attack on established religion influentially it reappeared in pestalozzi the first practical reformer of methods in frabel the inventor of the kindergarten in spencer the great systematizer of the philosophy of development and through these its spirit pervades the whole world of education at the present time in rousseau's new heloise there are the same contradictions the same paradoxes the same unsoundness as in his other works but it is more eloquent than any it is a novel in which he paints all the aspirations of the soul all its unrest all its indefinite longings its raptures and its despair in which he unfetters the imagination and sanctifies every impulse not only of affection but of passion this novel was the pioneer of the sentimental romances which rapidly followed in france and england and germany worse than our sensational literature since the author veiled his immoralities by painting the transports of passion under the guise of love which ever has its seat in the affections and is sustained only by respect here rousseau was a disguised seducer 
a poisoner of the moral sentiments a foe to what is most sacred and he was the more dangerous from his irresistible eloquence his sophistries in regard to political and social rights may be met by reason but not his attacks on the heart with his imaginary sorrows and joys his painting of raptures which can never be found here he undermines virtue as he had undermined truth and law here reprobation must become unqualified and he appears one of the very worst men who ever exercised a commanding influence on a wicked and perverse generation and this view of the man is rather confirmed by his own confessions a singularly attractive book yet from which after the perusal of the long catalogue of his sorrows joys humiliations triumphs ecstasies and miseries glories and shame one rises with great disappointment since no great truths useful lessons or even ennobling sentiments are impressed upon the mind to make us wiser or better the confessions are only a revelation of that sensibility excessive and morbid which reminds us of byron and his misanthropic poetry showing a man defiant proud vain unreasonable unsatisfied supremely worldly and egotistic the first six books are merely annals of sentimental debauchery the last six a kind of thermometer of friendship containing an accurate account of kisses given and received with slights huffs visits quarrels suspicions and jealousies interspersed with grand sentiments and profound views of life and human nature yet all illustrative of the utter vanity of earth and the failure of all moral pleasures to satisfy the cravings of an immortal mind the confessions remind us of manfred and ecclesiastes blended exceedingly readable and often unexceptionable where virtue is commended and vice portrayed in its true light but on the whole a book which no unsophisticated or inexperienced person can read without the consciousness of receiving a moral taint a book in no respect leading to repose or lofty contemplation or to submission to the evils of life which it catalogues with amazing detail a book not even conducive to innocent entertainment it is the revelation of the inner life of a sensualist an egotist and a hypocrite with a maudlin although genuine admiration for nature and virtue and friendship and love and the book reveals one of the most miserable and dissatisfied men that ever walked the earth seeking peace in solitude and virtue while yielding to unrestrained impulses a man of morbid sensibility ever yearning for happiness and pursuing it by impossible and impracticable paths no sadder autobiography has ever been written it is a lame and impotent attempt at self-justification revealing on every page the writer's distrust of the virtues which he exalts and of man whose reason and majesty he deifies even of the friendships in which he sought consolation and of the retirements where he hoped for rest the book reveals the man the writer has no hope or repose or faith nothing pleases him long and he is driven by his wild and undisciplined nature from one retreat to another by persecution more fancied than real until he dies not without suspicion of having taken his own life such was rousseau the greatest literary genius of his age the apostle of the reforms which are attempted in the french revolution and of ideas which still have a wondrous power some of which are grand and true but more of which are sophistical false and dangerous his theories are all plausible and are all enforced with matchless eloquence of style but not with eloquence of thought or true feeling like the soaring flights of pascal in every respect his superior in genius because more profound and lofty rousseau's writings like his life are one vast contradiction the blending of truth with error the truth valuable even when commonplace 
the error subtle and dangerous so that his general influence must be considered bad wherever man is weak or credulous or inexperienced or perverse i wish i could speak better of a man whom so many honestly admire and whose influence has been so marked during the last hundred years and will be equally great for a hundred years to come a man from whom madame de stal jefferson and lamartine drew so much of their inspiration whose ideas about childhood have so helpfully transformed the educational method of our own time but i must speak my honest conviction from the light i have at the same time hoping that fuller light may justify more leniency to one of the oracles whose doctrines are still cherished by many of the guides of modern thought end of section two